0: We're going to... So today we're going to have a, to have a class talking about prayer. Yeah. Where's the enthusiasm? I said, yeah. really I wanted to ask you about it. Okay, we're going to talk about prayer. But then I felt like, oh, no, you know, you want to start your class. But I wanted to ask um, what, if there's an obligation for women for prayer. We're going to talk about it. That's exactly what I wanted to ask, really. Okay, so we're going to have a class on prayer. My plan is to make this two classes. In other words this Monday and the next Monday. Um, so, there's a lot of material I'd like to get through. I imagine I'm not going to get through everything I want to get through. Um, but going to through the halakha? We're going to get through the, the halacha stuff we're going to cover first. Because I, I always like starting oh with the, I always like starting yeah, yes. with the when feasible because I think it grounds the conversation. Um, I was just telling Abbaqar today that you can learn all the chassidus you want, but if you don't know halacha, then you're just flying in the sky and it's all exactly. meaningless. No, it's true I mean, yeah, You know who says oh, that? In in the sky. You know who says that? No The Like in every second Hasidic discourse of his <laughs> <laughs> That if you don't know halacha And aren't keeping halacha properly Then like You know, it's like a It's like a You ever see those musicians Where they like Have the like fire Goes in their hand mm-hmm. So it's like These kind of flash papers It's like <laughs> Gone right? That all your All your and Spiritual stuff Is like And then gone It's meaningless the the thing that holds it in place in reality is the proper observance and knowledge of halacha. So, whenever possible, I'm it's helpful to ground it. Right. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. <laughs> in fact, <laughs> so much so was the Alter to push this agenda I, I that the other it. Hasidic rabbis <laughs> were very upset with him. Like, like he's going too far. <laughs> about halacha? Yeah. Like <laughs> not like not like we're against halacha, but like do you have to bring it up in every other discourse. Like, yes. I and, and he's like, yes, I do. But he also brings up Hasidism in those discourse. Yeah, but uh, you say, you know, <laughs> no, <laughs> okay. he said No, he said If you don't have halacha You can even you to do Hasulut yeah, so. yeah All right That's so perfect You understand yeah. yeah I'm glad that he has Your approbation If you say uh, I want to say Halachot um, tefila. How do you say, you say Hilchos Hilchot. Hilchot 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 So you write Halachot Tefillah You have to ask Somebody yeah. else I'm really bad With spelling probably a yod in there somewhere. Okay. Um, so before we get into the halachas, I want to just talk about the fact that mitzvahs are um, things that we have to do. Broadly speaking, we can divide mitzvahs into those things that are, the mitzvah is done intellectually with our sechel. So there are mitzvahs that are done that way. There are mitzvahs that are done behaviorally. Um, meaning basically things that you have to do or say, um, broadly speaking. Okay. Although doing and saying, we have to like include things like hearing in the case of shofar and whatever. The vast majority of mitzvahs go into that other category of the, the doing stuff. So um, hearing the shofar, which is not obligate, an obligation of women, although women have accepted upon themselves to hear the shofar if at all possible. Um, eating matzah on Pesach, um, counting the Omer, Again, mitzvah that accepted upon themselves as an obligation. Um, I'm going to focus entirely today just on positive mitzvahs because negative mitzvahs is a whole separate discussion. Okay. Um, and then there are mitzvahs which are purely intellectual. Um, there are not that many of them. Um, does anyone know the mitzvahs that are purely intellectual? No, mitzvahs that you do. No. Okay. So the knowledge of God that is an intellectual mitzvah. What else? Okay, so that's a little tricky. There's, there's the, the, the mitzvah of studying Torah actually has two elements. There is the, there is the mitzvah to be in verbally study Torah, which is more of a behavioral thing, and then there is the knowledge of Torah, which is having that knowledge. It's just knowledge of Torah, knowledge of God. And this one's a little bit tricky because you're going to ask why it's two separate mitzvahs, um, but the knowledge of God's unity. How that's different from the knowledge of God this is a topic for another time. Um, I don't know of any other mitzvah which is fulfilled by the intellect other than those three. I might be missing one. Wait, what was the third? There's the knowledge of God, knowledge of his unity, and the knowledge of Torah. Is there a mitzvah to not, like, have any, believe in any other? I'm not going to talk about negative mitzvahs. No. But that's not a... I'm only, okay. There's no positive mitzvah to not. That's right. kind of how those work. Right. You could have positive results result in a prohibition, but that the essence of is not a not. So that's what makes but it is it. there no process that you have to do to make sure that doesn't happen? There could be, but I said I don't want to talk about negative mitzvahs. <laughs> it doesn't matter how many ways you reword <laughs> the question, I will not answer it. Okay. Yeah. When you say uh, intellectually, you're saying that it's something that, like, we think, like, it's not an action. It's not an action. So let me, let me. I mean, use the, uh, even though, um, and we're not going to make this a conversation, women are not obligated to the midst of knowledge of Torah, although they are obligated to the knowledge of God and the knowledge of his oneness. Because those are more abstract, I'm going to use knowledge of Torah as the example. Okay. okay. If you have a Jewish man, such as myself, he has an obligation to reach a point that if you were to stop him in the middle of the street and you were to ask him any question about any mitzvah and its standard halachas and their rationales and sources, that he has that knowledge so clear and so accessible that he can answer it as clearly as the question of whether one is allowed to marry their sister. That's actually the halachic standard. So if you stop some guy in the street and say, are you allowed to marry your sister? The answer is No. no. So if you stop some guy in the street and you say, Um, what are the things prohibited under the laws of Shemitah if he can't like rattle off the list then he has yet to fulfill the mitzvah of knowledge of Torah and this applies he has to know all 613 mitzvahs their 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 primary halachas their basic reasonings and their sources I I know I have not yet finished this mitzvah it's a it's a hard mitzvah to finish how much yes for like about she doesn't have obligation to learn Torah I mean okay for a boy it's Quite important. Yeah. about it's like quite of a big issue, actually. Yeah. How much years? It's like required to go to Yeshua? It's like a very good question. I will, I will no, answer. Yes, I will, I will answer. You can say two years. I'm sorry. Two years is enough. I, I will tell you like this. I will tell you like this. Years is very hard to quantify because yeah. people are different. There was, for instance, there was a there was a convert, who was I think the arch one of the archbishops or the personal priest of Por- the, the king of Portugal and he decided to convert to Judaism. Um, he was a Jew for all three years before he, before he was, um, he went to try and convert the the king of Spain, Germany. He was, he was a big king, I forgot what his name was. He tried to convert him to Judaism, mm-hmm. and the king decided that he wasn't oppressed, and Christians would become Jews are punishable by being burned at the stake, so he had him burned at the stake. He was Jewish for all three years, this person. He wasn't a like Jewish, yeah. So he converted to Judaism. He was an archbishop or something, and converted to Judaism. He was friends with, um, he's with the base. The, the anyway, the, he's brought in in the base, in the code of Jewish law as a halachic source for how he practiced the mitzvah of tzitzis, Is considered to be a halachic. Mm-hmm. So in three years, he went from being a non-Jew oh, wow. to a halachic authority on the same level as people like the Beis Yosef. Yeah. Now, so the thing, measuring it in years, yeah, right? So that similar. so measuring in years, you have to know who the person is, what they're capable of, right? yeah. This is an extreme case, right? So the thing is like this. As a general rule, okay, and um, I have no vested interest in marrying a particular person, but as a general rule, um, it's a good idea that if if the person you're marrying, all things being equal, it's not always possible, but should have enough knowledge of Torah study that they're capable of learning Gemara with Tosfos. If they have not achieved that level, you really have to think very hard about you know where their knowledge is based. What? No, I'm serious. I'm very serious. Yeah, so bad, actually, it's it's kind of it's kind of like there's and kind of like the, the, and I'll explain to you. I mean, this is like taking this way off, but it's an important thing. The, the yeah. basic, the ability to learn Gemara with Tosfos basically. No with Tosos, but it doesn't matter. It's a commentary in the Gemara. And okay. on you have the Gemara on one side, you have Rashi on the other side, you have Tosfos. It, the only thing for the purpose of this conversation that, that you need to understand about that is that someone who can learn more with Tosfos means they've elite, achieved a level of autonomy in their Torah study that they're not basically just parroting what other people are telling them anymore. Yeah. And if. But that takes some time. Right. So I know Bachram that did it in two years. Yeah. I have a friend of mine in Yeshiva who went from Aleph Beis to being able to learn more than just Tosfos very, very well in a year and a half. And he's very. Diligent and brilliant person, right? I know Bakrab that's been in Yeshiva for three years and still can't learn Gemara. Now sometimes, you know, some people are intellectually challenged, blah blah blah. I'm saying, but it's just a completely abstract rule of thumb, yeah. there's a level of grounding and autonomy and really understanding what Torah is and how it works that you can kind of use that as a rough demarcator. Mm-hmm. Now, the other thing you want to give is that sometimes, you know, life doesn't always let you marry the person you ideally would like to marry. I mean, mm-hmm. Life doesn't always allow you to marry the person you would ideally like to marry. Mm-hmm. Like, some of us would like to marry like the most ideal person in existence, but mm-hmm. if we're going to be objective, none of us do. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> no, it's. I mean, someone must. Yeah, you know, <laughs> someone. There, there's one. Yeah, there someone. is, there is one man who married the ideal woman, and one woman who married the ideal man, and hopefully they married each other because that would, you know, be waste shame to waste them on someone else. But no, so I'm saying like, as, as an abstract rule of thumb, this is a good idea. In practice, like, if everything else seems a good idea, but they haven't mastered how to learn tefillos, it's not like you know, well then that's it. But I think. And yeah, but and the, I will just say one the, the, the other the, the thing on the matter. Things. I'll say one other thing well, on the matter. 100. One other thing on the matter, which um, is advice that I tell Bachrim, but it works both ways, which is you have to. I tell the Bachrim you have to be the kind of Bachr that the kind of woman you want to marry want as a husband. If you want to marry somebody who knows how to learn Gemara with Tosas, had that level of Torah study, then you have to be the kind of woman that such a person would want to marry. Um, and I'll leave it at that. Okay. Fine so there's mitzvahs that so, so, so the mitzvahs that are done in the intellect meaning that knowledge has to be so ingrained that you could just randomly ask the person and they can they, and so again using the using Torah, we're, Torah the knowledge of Torah as so the minimum knowledge of Torah is that the person knows, the man knows all 613 mitzvahs all of their halachas all of the reasonings behind those halachas and all the sources for those halachas um, you can realize that that's a bit of a task right where does it say this? It's codified in the I mean, Ramb- It's codified in the laws of Torah study. I mean, there's a bit of a dispute as to the scope between the Rambam and the Rush. We rule at the Rush that you need to know the right reasons as well. But, you know, we, um, but that level of uh, that level of it's ingrained in you. It's not a it's not a thinking mitzvah. It's a knowledge mitzvah. Kind of the way like when you go to a doctor, you don't expect him to be thinking about your problem, but you they know it. Right? So the same thing is true with knowledge of God. Knowledge of his unity has to be ingrained that deeply that if someone just stops you on the street and asks you a theological question about God, you are able to clearly answer because you, you, you know it. Not you're just repeating words, but you actually know it. Okay. Um, and then there are mitzvahs that are done, like, say, eating matzah, reciting the Megillah, or hearing the Megillah being recited, um, Kiddush on Shabbos. Um, lighting Shabbos, candles, rabbinic mitzvah, etc, etc, etc. Those are mitzvahs that are very easy to quantify because they're just pure behaviors. Okay? Then you have mitzvahs which are not intellectual, they're not behaviors, they're mitzvahs that relate to our emotions. Positive mitzvahs that relate to our emotions. From the Gemara, it is very clear that prayer is a mitzvah um, that relates to one's emotions. In other words, the mitzvah of prayer is not a mitzvah one performs by knowing something, nor is it a mitzvah that one performs by doing something or in doing I'm including even saying something. Okay, what are the behavioral mitzvahs? All the basic ones that you know about. Those are all the behavior. Okay, okay the, 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 the Talmud says that the... the, the Mitzvah of prayer is derived from the verse um, um, you should serve Hashem with all your heart and the Talmud says what is the What is the service in the heart that's a reference to tefillah a reference to prayer so we see that tefillah or prayer is a, is a mitzvah that is done not behaviorally like saying Kiddush um, or eating matzah nor is it a mitzvah that is done intellectually like the knowledge of Torah or the knowledge of God's unity it is a mitzvah that one does um, by changing one's emotional state somehow or achieving a kind of an emotional state okay, now now the question is women and tefillah so a very quick run, rundown on this the Talmud says very clearly women are obligated to pray women have an obligation to pray they have an obligation to tefillah, and the Talmud objects that is not um, the obligation of prayer, time-bound mitzvah. And there's a general: women are exempt from time-bound mitzvahs. And does anyone know what the Talmud's response is? Asking for mercy. Right, prayer prayer involves asking for divine mercy. Women are not exempt for the need for divine mercy, and therefore, even though it's a time-bound mitzvah, women are obligated to pray. Okay. So it's one of those exceptions to the rule. Okay, now, so far so good. This is where things get really interesting. <sighs> Which obligation to pray is the Talmud talking about? Shema. No, Shema is not prayer. Didn't not no, prayer Shema is put in the context of prayer because it facilitates prayer but it's actually a separate mitzvah women are not obligated to recite the Shema it's highly recommended it's like a good idea it's, it's good for your spiritual well-being but by no means a requirement okay so we have to, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you um, I'm going to give you the, the basic outline of this one view is the view of the Rambam Maimonides and his view is that there is a biblical obligation to pray every day. When I, what prayer is, we'll get into it in a second. There's a biblical obligation to pray every day. Rambam, Rambam or Rambam? Rambam, Maimonides. Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon. I would say the Sephardi, but that doesn't help because the Rambam was also Sephardi. So. Yeah. I mean, literally, they were both Sephardi. They were both from Spain. Sfaradi was his grandson, right? No. No relation. I mean, I mean, some distant relation, probably, but no no direct relation. Okay, so the Rambam of emotion on Ben Meinman, he says that there's a biblical obligation to pray every day, once a day. And the rabbis then added an obligation to pray twice, asterisk, three times a day, with a set formula, you know, we, what we now know as the Shmon Eserai. And so when the Talmud is referring to the obligation to pray that applies to women, it's referring to the biblical obligation to pray, which means, according to this view, women have an obligation to pray every day, but there's no set time during the day they have to pray, nor is there any set form that that prayer has to take. You don't have to use a set text or anything. Who says this, the Rambam? The, Rambam. the says Rambam. biblical obligation to pray every day. Right. And when the Talmud says women have to pray, even though it's a time-bound mitzvah, it's a reference to... The biblical obligation. So it comes out according to this. Women have an obligation to pray once a day. It doesn't matter when during the day. And there is not a set text that they must use. So we don't have to, I, I'm going to come back and read this. I just want to lay out the... Okay. Okay. Um, the other view and then you really could divide this and maybe say that there's more than one of you here but we're going to just oversimplify for our purposes is that there is no obligation to pray on a regular basis biblically there's no biblical obligation to pray on a regular basis for everyone? anyone mm-hmm. who says that? this is the view of the Ramban Nachmanides Rabbi Moshe Ben-Nachman also of Spanish ancestry um Right. This, is, this is a fun machlokas because their names sound the same. So the Ramban, with an N at the end, says that there is no obligation to pray on a regular basis biblically. And therefore, when the Talmud says women have an obligation to pray, it's referring to the rabbinic obligation to pray, pray twice daily with the set text of the Shemona Esrei. So how would there be an, a biblical obligation for women to pray if there's no obligation for women to pray? Well, because... I didn't say there was a... You mixed two different views. The Talmud says this is an obligation for women to pray, even though it's a time-bound mitzvah. The Talmud is ambiguous whether it's referring to a biblical obligation to pray or a rabbinic obligation to pray. So I'll repeat this again. According to the Rambam, There is a biblical obligation incumbent upon every Jew, male or female, to pray once a day. There is an additional rabbinic obligation incumbent only upon men to pray twice, asterisk three times a day, using the text of the Shema Masrei. The Ramban, Nachmanides, disagrees and says there is no biblical obligation to pray on any regular basis. And so in the Talmud says that women are obligated to pray, it's referring to the rabbinic obligation to pray twice daily using the text of the Shmoneh Esrei. Not, so generally no obligation to pray. On a regular basis. I'm being intentionally vague as to what that means because then that subdivides into other views. But for our purposes, there's just no regular obligation to pray. Whether there's ever a biblical obligation to pray, it's a separate issue. Okay. In the Talmud, the Talmud does not say whether it's referring to a biblical or a rabbinic obligation. There is a, a, says Three one a day. Maybe. I will, will write it on the board, so make sure we have it clear. Rambam says one time a day, and for men, twice. Yes? Twice. Oh, one, second. one second. Do you have it clear, or should I do it on the board? I don't need to. That's okay. This month will show up? Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Can you have another color marker, please? Okay. So the ramban says women have to pray once a day. The ramban says women have to pray twice a day, and they have to use the structure of the Shmonestri, which means they have to basically daven Shachar, mincha. So we're talking about the when we're talking about praying two or three times a day, we're talking about the obligation that is considered now that prayer. Yeah. Yeah. Where is the two or three... Um, they originally instituted it, too, with an option of a bonus if you wanted, and then because Jews always love turning things that are optional into obligations, at some point the men were like, let's just make the third prayer obligatory. So if you're a man, you have an obligation to pray three times. If you're a woman, you follow the ramban, you have an obligation to only pay twice. And you could do the bonus if you want. Okay. Um, okay. Now. What's the latest thing? seven maris? One thing at a time. Sorry, I was okay. just thinking because it's a nine. Okay. now. This of course. So what is so what is the halachic meaning of tefillah? Like what 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 are you what are you supposed to do? Okay. Um and the halachic meaning of tefillah is you're supposed to ask for your needs. You're supposed to beseech God for what you need. Okay. Um, and an interesting halacha, um, you're not allowed to daven, you're not allowed to pray because it's an obligation to pray. You are not allowed to pray because it's an obligation to pray. Oh, well, For the sake. Of- Right. In other words, in other words, the way this works is that before you pray, you have to stop and actually bring yourself to the point that you realize you need stuff and that God, you need to ask God for it, and then your request, your beseeching is done genuinely. That's actually codified in the code of Jewish law, that if you just walk into the shul and start rattling off the text of the siddur, then you didn't really do what you're supposed to do. There's a question whether, you're, whether you go back and do it again. I don't want to get into that. It's not a practical law class. But in terms of the proper way to pray, the actual mitzvah is that entails spending time, bringing oneself to a state where they actually feel the genuine need to ask God for help and her persistence providing what they need. Yeah. So if you can't get to that state, just don't say anything. No, I'm not. I, I want to because this is not a practical halacha class. I want to focus purely on the way the what halacha says ought to be done. If it that doesn't happen, what's the like the, you know, like what should you do after that point, like that? Then this already is going to turn us away from a philosophy class to a whole. And it, my whole reason for getting the luck is to set the framework for the philosophy. Okay. Um, I will just tell you that there is a view. I'm not getting with this practical. There is a view that a person who has come home from a journey is exempt from tefillah because the assumption is that they're not going to be able. To bring themselves to that state, because they're worn out from the journey. Moreover, people don't know this: that it's actually in the code of Jewish law that if one is hungry to the point that they're going to be preoccupied with the fact that I would like to eat right now, halachically, what are they supposed to do? Eat first. They're supposed to eat. It's actually in the code of Jewish, not like a Hasidic custom thing. It's actually in the code of Jewish law. Um, for the, so I'm not getting into all like like in all halachic issues there's always a matter of adjudication of like how far do you push something you know how, how sincere does sincere have to be how hungry does hungry have to be not getting into that but as a matter of principle I mean this is very serious like that the, 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 in the abstract the request has to be sincere um, okay now Practically speaking, who does the halacha follow, the Ramban or the Rambam? Anyone know? This is relevant for you. I mean, for men, it doesn't really make a difference because we have to do the same yeah, yeah. stuff. So, so, the thing is like this. If you are follow Ashkenazic practice. Is there anyone here who does not follow Ashkenazic practice? Okay. So if you follow Ashkenazic practice, and then we say the main halachic view is that of the Ramban. What does main halachic view mean? All things being equal, you're obligated to do what? Davin twice. Davin, Shachris, and Mincha, at the appropriate times, using the Shimon so you can do it in English. However, are things always equal? Are there extenuating circumstances? There are. And because it is not ruled conclusively like the Ramban, in extenuating circumstances or where there's other issues at play, um, the lenient view of the Rambam can be followed, in which case that any prayer asking God for your needs um, is sufficient. So much so that I um, have heard um, from a friend of my wife who asked the rabbi, she's a lot of little kids, and she's like, well, how do I daven? And he says, well, do you ask Hashem for help dealing with things that the day? she says yes well then you're done you're good <laughs> right now so there is a for a woman it really becomes context dependent so the, the all things being equal if a woman actually really has time to da in, in the morning and da in, in the afternoon then the primary view is that she should do so and if saying she can rely on the lenient view and how how long or deep or heartfelt or the prayer has to be um, if you're following the view that's once a day um, there's a range of views. The most minimal view is that any any utterance of any utterance of asking God for help in any matter would be sufficient. Like even let's say like brachas in the morning. Right. So m- so many alcholri say if you say brachas in the morning, which include if you know, look in the text, some of the brachas actually contain a request for assistance, and that would be sufficient. Um, not in your case, but in a few years in your case, God willing. Right. Okay. So that's the so what's so the halachic framework of of, of 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 prayer is that you're supposed to ask sincerely. Okay. The asking the, the sincere part, the the, the the emotional part is that to get to a point where that request is done in a sincere way. Now here's the thing. You may have noticed when you looked in a sitter that there's a lot more stuff going on in the sitter other than just asking God for what you need, right? Like someone mentioned the Shema, and I objected and said Shema is not prayer, right? In fact, if you look through the Shachra service and you counted all of the places where a request was being made, would you get to... How much of that would be... Proportionally, how much of the Shachras do you think is requests? One-third? It's like more, most of it. No. No, most of it is a... It's a minority. It's a minority. of yeah, is- Of the shachras. What? Of the entire shachris service. Oh. Yeah. So, so for, for instance... Hashem. So what? It's, it's a lot praising. of praising Hashem. It's a lot about speaking about the specialness of Judaism. A lot about speaking about um, God's providence over the Jewish people. It's a lot. um it's how you treat any royalty. Praise them for what their power is, and then you step forward. Step, whatever right. And then you say your request, and then you thank them for giving you the ability to forgive your request. Right. But there's an interesting thing that has happened over time, which is the chakras gets longer. Um, and what should be very clear is that, at least in some sort of ideal sense, not in a say, practical sense, but there is a, there's apparently more that goes into this than simply sincerely asking for your needs. The kind of state of mind of sincerely asking for your needs that is ideally required apparently entails, you know, Sang Modani, making morning blessings, um, speaking about how God should accept our, our, our reciting the verses of the sacrifices in lieu of the sacrifices, praising God for his providence and his creation of the world, depicting the service of the angels, right, Um, thanking God for his tremendous compassion about um, loving us as Jews, reflecting on God's unity, um, um, developing the importance of loving God and how that translates into Torah and Mitzvahs, um, that Torah and Mitzvahs have real consequences in our lives, etc., you know, the Exodus from Egypt. There's a lot of stuff in the chakras that seemingly, if the only thing I need to get is to sincerely like, ask God for, my, for what, I, what, I, what I need, seems a little bit superfluous. So, what you see from here is that while there is a basic minimum of the halacha, of tefillah, is to ask God in a genuine manner for what you need, the, the kind of state of mind you're supposed to be when you ask that is apparently something much more profound um, and much loftier than just, I need help, God, please help me. Or, maybe putting this differently, that there's much more going on in asking um, for what you need than we often give it credit for. Or maybe we have to be in a certain mindset to ask what mm-hmm. you Yeah, except I've been late for, you know, stuff, and I've asked God to, like, help bring the bus faster, and, you know, on a strictly, purely halachic definition of prayer, according to the Rambam, I think I did it. Especially if I say, "God, you always take care of me." Can you please make the bus come on time? Thank you for listening. I mean, I I I I, the, I followed the I followed I and I followed the four. You're like, what else do you want? Right? It's not hard, right? Are we supposed to do that whenever? Yes, actually. Uh, if you have to do all the steps or not, if you're already diving, always no. But yeah, no. There there is a view that there's a biblical obligation to pray for God whenever you feel the need for something. Right. Maybe. maybe there's some dis- dis- ambiguity about that okay so so there's a very interesting cryptic line about um, from the al the founder of Chabad where he writes in a letter that anybody who says that prayer is rabbinic has never prayed the al said that the Alt-Rebbe said that now what is funny about this no, what's even more funny is that who ruled that the main halachic view should be of the Ramban? The Altarebba <laughs> also, like the standard view of Ashkenazim, which the Rebbe himself also codified. So the Altarebba in his code of Jewish law writes that the standard view, the main view, is that prayer is a rabbinic, there's no biblical obligation to pray. And yet in a letter he writes that anyone who says that prayer is rabbinic has never prayed. Anyway, it's a He's not saying not saying that it's rabbinic. He says that you're saying Rambam said to, to pray a certain amount of times in a certain way. He never said. It sounds like he didn't have an opinion on whether or not it was biblical or not. He just said. The, who the Rambam? The Rambam. No, he Rambam. did. He said that he's quite explicit. There is no daily obligation to pray. Oh. Yeah, is. that's why I There's none. Can yeah. Should I put a none there? Would that make that easier? Not. He's um. he's ambiguous. He said there is no such thing. And so the same Alter Rebbe who followed the standard Ashkenazic view that the primary halachic view should follow the Ramban that there is no biblical obligation to pray hence women obligated to to pray Shachar Samincha writes in a letter that anyone who says that prayer is rabbinic has never prayed in their life. Mm. I'm going to list a few mitzvahs. Yes. Is that going on the idea that like because praying shouldn't just be something that you're doing so if you're just saying it's rabbinic and you're just doing it for the sake of no 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 he's no. talking about the halachic status of the mitzvah oh he's not talking about like any mindset no he's not talking about why you pray so here's the thing is there a mitzvah to love God yeah is yeah. that biblical or rabbinic biblical that's biblical is there a mitzvah to fear God biblical or rabbinic Biblical. mitzvah to trust God mm-hmm. yep biblical or rabbinic B- biblical, biblical. Okay, now, if you pray properly, right, if you, let's make it like a, 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 a bird's eye view of the sitter for a second, okay? So I'm going to run through the sitter very, very quickly, okay? And I'm just going to mention a few things. You're alive and you can function and other people are alive and they can function, okay? God has given you the opportunity to serve him. God has protected the Jewish people throughout history. God creates and governs the world and does miracles and, 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 and governs the natural order of things. God is so transcendent that even the angels can't deal with how awesome he is. God has given a spe- given over a special relationship to you. God is the only true existence. You can connect to him through Judaism. Um, God took us out of Egypt to make him his people. Again, that's an overview of the... up to Okay? very quickly overview the whole chakra service if you internalized all of that what would happen to how you felt about god overwhelmed. you would be overwhelmed which is a form of fear you would feel loyalty which is a form of fear you would desire to close to him that's love you would trust him right all of these biblical mitzvahs that are all emotional in nature what happens if you actually internalize everything that's written in the chakras up to the asking for what you need part oh yeah the, the prayer is to do those mitzvahs right so while it might be the case that the Shmona Esrei part about is the whole question but since the proper way to daven Shmona Esrei is having reached a state of being full of love and fear and trust and etc in God, which are all actual mitzv- Biblical mitzvahs. If you went through Shachar, and, and, estrei, and you're like, yeah, yeah, it was just a Rabbinic thing because we follow the rabbana and asking for your needs is only a Rabbinic requirement, blah, 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 blah. So you apparently did not grow in love of fear, love, fear, trust, etc. of God, in which case you obviously haven't prayed the way our sages intended you to because your version of prayer doesn't need that whole long introduction. Your version of prayer just means like, oh, yeah, I'm, I, you know, my, I have an overdraft in my bank account and I need God's help and then you just stop in for esrei. Right? So, there's a disconnect between viewing it as merely asking for your needs in which case you really have to ask why there's this so long chakra service. And they say, okay, but what about mincha, right? Mincha's just asking for your needs, right? Mincha's just right? I mean, there's asher before because you're not supposed to pray without saying some words of Torah first but it's basically mincha's jeshmones, right? Do you know why we don't have a whole long workup for mincha? You're, What's the halachic reason? You already did it for Shachris. You did it for Shachris. You're, wor- you're, you're still on that um, you're still on that high, if you will, yeah? Such to the point that there's an interesting question, which we're not going to get into. What if a person daven chakras and they didn't daven the other stuff? Should they make it up by mincha? I'm not getting into that. That's, it's even a question because the reason you don't do all that stuff by mincha is we're presuming that... Wait, if you didn't daven chakras? If you daven shvaneser, but you didn't do all the preliminary stuff, Should you what do you do? Do you make it up by mincha or not? It's a question. I'm not getting into it, but it's an interesting question. And, and one of the bases of the question is the reason we don't do it by mincha is because assumed. it's assumed that that shift that's happened by chakras by has lasted until mincha. It's assumed that it's worn off sometime by the time you've gone to sleep. Remember, Marv is not original obligation, so I want to keep Marv as a separate category. Wait, so what do you mean it's a chimba when you go to sleep? It's that by the next day you wake up. Like, oh, you okay. Kind of, like, you, you, so you need to redo you it. You need to redo it, yeah. So that means that the idea of saying, oh yeah, there's a mitzvah to ask God sincerely for what you need, you know, that's true, there is such a mitzvah. But the way that those, that mitzvah is supposed to be done entails... Growing in things which are clearly biblical requirements love, fear, trust, etc. Which now helps us understand a little bit when our sages say that prayer is a service of the heart. If all they meant was asking for what you need sincerely, like what's the service of the heart? Like you feel like you need something, you ask. You don't feel like you need something, realize you need stuff, and then ask. It's not what's the whole service of the heart? What's the whole emotional work? But apparently, The kind of asking that they had in mind is, and again, according to the Rambam, this is biblical. According to the Rambam, it's rabbinic, but the kind of asking is a person who has, I don't know, full, but grown in their love of God, in their fear of God, their trust of God, then coming to ask that God who they love, fear, and trust for their needs, that's what prayer is supposed to be, but just like I need stuff and God happens to run the universe, so I'll ask Him. I'm not saying you didn't do the mitzvah of prayer, but you certainly didn't do it the way your sages intended it to be done. Okay. And so the have a statement that anyone who anyone who who says prayers rabbinic hasn't prayed in their life is referring to prayer as it was proper as was it properly conceived by the sages, not the minimal halachic issue of. You know, when when the Talmud says women are required to pray, what is it referring to? Which means, if if we want to have a proper philosophical discussion of prayer, we need to understand what is what is this build up to the prayer. Okay. Now. One of the interesting things is that the Hebrew word for prayer is, start, we'll start, tefillah, right? And I'm sure everyone knows this already, but tefillah doesn't actually have any connection to the words, words in Hebrew for asking or beseeching um, or requesting. It has no connection to those words at all. What word is it derived from? Mm-hmm. Anyone know? Naphtali What? Isn't it connected to Naphtali? It is connected to the name Naphtali. What? To, like, tie it to to actually gluing is probably a better translation because the same word is used in the context of like attaching different pieces of clay together after they cracks Like if the cl- like if you have a like an earthenware jug and it cracks and so you like patch it up with some wet clay and then you put it in the kiln again, that's called typho So it's more like gluing or adhesion rather than tying. But whatever, connection broadly speaking, and and also that's what the word nef- that's the name of tali derived from the same thing. It means connection. It, it means connection. What does mean? To connect oneself. So, lit comes you, from tefillah? And, and tefillah is the act, yeah, tefillah, so litpalel, if you like, if you... There are words that, like, they mean one thing, but they're derived from a different mean, word. If you were to take <laughs> the word litpalel, and you were to say, what does it mean based on the way the word is derived from? It? it means to connect oneself. Now, it means to pray, but that tells us what the notion of prayer means. It means to connect oneself and this is very important because now what we're saying is that there's a kind of connecting oneself that is manifest or achieved when one to ask for one's needs but that type of connection really only is achieved if when you're asking for your needs you've preceded it by this growth in the biblical mitzvahs of loving God trusting God etc. Right? Um and in fact this has made a little bit clearer um Based on a, a, a on an Aramaic translation of the Chumash. Okay. So, a little bit of background. Okay. No, Yonasan uh, Ben Uziel, if I remember correctly. Um, some background. Okay. So, uh, is everyone familiar with the basic story of Dina and Shechem? Anyone not familiar? Do you want me to go over it? Well, I'm asking okay. to see if anyone. you know the one who took that paper? No, I thought she was raped. Right. It was taken and then it was time to say it nicely. Yes. <laughs> and, 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 and then, and then, and then Shimon and Levy who was, by the way, this same is our... So- They're yes. supposed to get the people. And then they married her? No, that was... They, they didn't marry her. Right. They was okay. marry her. Okay. You want the whole story? Maybe we just to clarify. Okay. But I'm giving you the story. I'm not going to make it politically correct. Okay. Okay. I don't think anyone married this Okay. Yeah. So... Dina. Um, she put a trigger warning on the soundtrack. You can do whatever you want. I take no responsibility for the soundtrack whatsoever. I'm just going to tell you the story as it, you know, our sages tell the story. Um, Dina did not properly appreciate the importance of modesty. Not in the sense that she acted in a promiscuous manner, but the idea that. Um, she shouldn't just be going out and, seeing, and going out in public for no reason and just to see what's going on and so she would hang around in public and eventually she caught the eye of um, Shechem who was the son of Chamor, the king of the city of Shechem and that's confusing you know, like, donkey? yeah Nice. anyway so <laughs> he kidnapped her and raped her um, and decided to make her his wife and then pleaded with his father Hamor that they should make a treaty with uh, with Yaakov and his sons that they should all intermarry and you know like their women will marry they will marry their women will marry their women it will be wonderful it will be one nation and they went to Yaakov and um, he was not very happy about this but he shocker. stayed silent what? shocker and um, but um, the, 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 the Yaakov's sons they said well you know that's fine, but you need to circumcise yourself because we can't you know, intermingle with uncircumcised people. And then on the third day after the circumcision, where the whole city of Shem had circumcised himself because that's how it is and when you're in an absolute monarchy, right? You can get your people to do anything you want. Um, Shimon and Levi, who are all of how old? 14. Thirteen. This is where we know that our mitzvah is thirteen. Is they went and they slaughtered all of the in- male inhabitants of the city and then took all of the females and the children as slaves. And rescued Dina, and then Dina says that she was too embarrassed to come back to live amongst the children of Yaakov because who would want to marry her, and so Shimon her brother married her. Um, the halachic explanation of how that's hal- permitted is for another time. But didn't okay. her child marry? The the that there's differing versions of already. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, because later, later on, when it well, speaks about the children of Shimon, um, one of Shimon's sons is is Shal ben Haknanis. Shall the son of a Canaanite woman. Um, and we know that the, they did not marry Canaanite women. And this is a reference to Dina, who um, was taken by Canaanite. And there's more explanation of why that name works and why but but that's... that's not Pshat, not no, that's Pshat. Saying that that's Dina? Yeah. Psh- I don't want to get into this dispute about what Pshat is, but there's often a mistake is that people think Pshat means a literal reading of the text. Pshat means the 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 most straightforward narrative reading of the text that accounts for all of its anomalies. Not the same thing. People often they misuse the word pshat. Um, so for instance, if you miss the subtext in a story, you miss the pshat. I don't care that it wasn't written there. So it's just that, That's what the word means. When, when, whenever people are discussing the pshat of the story, they're not asking about what the literal translations of words are. They're asking about... So then they should change the words. No, it doesn't mean straightforward. It means laid out, and it's contrasted against drush. It, it, it's often presented wrong. It's just it, it, it. you know, if you if you if you have an explanation of the chumash which does not account for a contradiction or an anomaly or an odd turn of phrase, then that's not kshat. That's just you know sloppy reading. Anyway, when, are, when, when, when they all discuss, like when Rashi and the Rashbam and the Ramban are debating, what's the pshat? That's the context in which they're using the word. So if you're asking, is it literally in the Chumash, which I think is what you're asking, then I would say absolutely not. It's not literally in the Chumash, but most of the story is not literally in the Chumash for that matter. Um, anyway, now fast forward a little bit. Yaakov mentions that he took the city of Shechem with his sword and his bow. Which t- is a weird thing; it doesn't show up anywhere in the Chumash. The story of I mean, Yaakov just mentions that he took it from, from the Emirate peoples who lived in Shechem. Okay, so there's like clearly a miss. This goes back into the question of Pshat. There's a missing um, thing, right? Because the story of De- the story of Shechem ends off with Shimon and Levi wiping out the city and taking everyone captive. And then la- and and Yaakov, by the way, is not happy about this. When they come back, he's like, "You're gonna, you're you you know, you you're bunch of murderers. You're gonna give me a bad name." And they said, well, our sister's not a prostitute. So, you know, and then Yaakov was silent. Which the different people interpreting pshat interpret that silence differently. Um, and then later on, Yaakov's like, yeah, in the city of Shechem, which I conquered with my sword and my bow. Like, when, when did you conquer the city with your sword and your bow? Like, There's, a, <laughs> there's something like missing here. It's like an obvious question, but because you read the little piecemeal parts. Anyway, um, so the missing information is like this. Yaakov was right. The Emirates like, okay, these, um, this, this Yaakov and his like, extended tribe of um, murderous people need to be wiped out of our territory. They're a danger to us. Um, and so they assembled at the city of Shechem to, to attack the children of Yaakov and uh, Yaakov's whole encampment. And so Yaakov and his uh, children had to um, fight off the Emirates and reconquer the city of Shechem. Um, and the Medrash tells us some very fantastic things about how that happened. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen a movie with like a superhero but the sense is that like, Yaakov is standing there on the hill like shooting arrows down at armies of people and killing them that's the Medrash it. that is not Pshat but what clearly has to be Pshat is that like at some point there was a war and Yaakov took a sword and a bow and fought the Emirates and the reason is they were trying to defend and against the Jews for Shimon and Levi's war crimes yay Shimon and Levi um but it takes on a whole new connotation now. I think, the right I think they did the right thing. I'm a big fan of Shimon <laughs> Levy. Although, to be, fair, the to be fair, Moshe thought they were a little violent. That's why they weren't all allowed to live together. Yeah, Shimon and Levy, they're not like, all concentrated in one place for that reason. But they had an like, extraordinary strength. Yes. Anyway, getting back they to were the... 13-year-old um, and they totally. the whole city. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, here's the here's here's the thing. The 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 translation of the Chumash by, if you remember correctly, it's the targum of Rabbi Yonasan ben Uziel. Rabbi ben Uzil was the greatest of the students of Hillel. Hill's greatest student was Rabbi Yonasan ben Uziel, and his most minor student was Rabbi Yochan ben Zaka who ended up becoming the head of the Sanhedrin. So, Just to give context. Yeah, he also was younger, and so he lived a long time, and whatever. Anyway, Sbeirnoson Buzi wrote the translated the Chumash into Aramaic, and his translation is much more um, willing to stray from the literal meaning of the words to add a greater depth and insight. And he translates the word cherev, meaning sword, as slaysa, prayer, and he translates the word "keshes," bow, as "boasi," request. So. He translates it as that Yaakov, said, Yaakov conquered the city of Shem with his prayer and his request. Is that allowed to translate something wrong? <laughs> like I'm gonna saying- ask you a question Have you ever like read anything from Chasidus ever? Yeah. Have you noticed that Chasidus will often translate things in a way that's clearly not the straightforward meaning of what the story is? Right. Do you think Chassidus was the first group of people to do that? Now that's an ancient tradition going all the way back to who? God. God. <laughs> it's part of God containing all of his wisdom in a finite book. You're kind of going to have to read it on different layers and levels in order to do that, right? Just think about that visually. If you have an infinite amount of wisdom and a finite book, you're going to have to stack some of the wisdom on top of each other. You're going to have like a layered cake. Seven layer cake. <laughs> an infinite layer cake where each layer is only finite long. I got cake. Okay. What? <laughs> seven, layer it cake, yeah. seven layer cake, yeah. It's yeah. a four layer yeah. cake. Shot is your so. Each layer has seventy facets. Seven. How <laughs> <laughs> like much? Okay. okay. Wait, so oh, it's Each layer has its own seventy facets. Yes, you've heard of the Tukune Zohar? I know, but then That's seventy tablistic explanations of the word voracious. But but then is there like another seventy that? like on yes. all of them at the same time it's, it's more complicated There's, anyway the point of all of this is the point of all of this is um, so the point of all of this is is the Torah redundant no that was that was a rhetorical question and just to make sure we don't get into a debate about that I will answer it. no the Torah is not redundant are the sages redundant no, no. So, if Rabbi Yonassim ben translated, for whatever reason, sword as prayer and bow as request, what does that tell you about prayer and request? Are they identical things? No. So apparently, the, the, apparently there's really two elements here. To put this back in the context we are speaking about, there's all the stuff that leads up to the Shmon that would be the sword or the slice in Aramaic or the tefillah part. Um, the part that the Altar says is clearly biblical, if you're doing it right. And then afterwards comes the request part, which is, and apparently the, the analogy between those two things is like a sword and a bow. Okay. Okay. So that further highlights that the way the sages construed this idea of request is following this other thing called the way the of service of the heart. So when we speak about tefillah, Right? There's an interesting question. Is the requests of the Shmona Esrei the main thing, or is that more like the the consequence, the icing on the cake, the conclusion of proper prayer? In other words, is the main effort of prayer the Shmona Esrei, or is the main effort of prayer in the emotional work that you do before the Shmona Estra? And you'll find different sources that kind of emphasize one or emphasize the other. so there's, there's, there's where Yaakov was traveling to and it says Vayifga oh. ben he encountered the place and one of the translations of Vayifga is that he prayed as he stopped it there, I will tell you like this there, I'm not an expert in everything I have yet to encounter any, anything from in, in the Chumash or in the, the um, what do you call it the Talmudic sages in the Midrashim that can unambiguously be called meditating I'm not saying you can't read it into it if you want, um, but you find things like uh, so you have like for instance that that Yitzhak went out to go talk in the fields, which is clearly a reference to prayer. Okay, but but that's pretty vague as to what that means, right? We um, we 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 know about them making sacrifices. That's pretty explicit, um, and there are allusions to prayer, but what exactly that is—is is it meditating or not? In um, Chassidus, it does say that the forefathers. Chose to be shepherds so that they would have time to spend in reflection. Um, but that's. Uh, I'll be a shepherd. Have you ever been around totally sheep? Mm-hmm. Okay, so, <laughs> so, what thi- w- what this means is that. Even though when you look at it purely from the lachic lens, you tend to think, okay, prayer is the Shmona The that is one half of a picture, one side of a picture, so much so that there's a discussion as to where the main emphasis should actually be. Um, now, so because of that, I actually do not want to spend a lot of time talking about Shmona Esrei. Since the work, the avodah shabalev, the work of prayer, is actually the stuff that's up to the shmonesrei, okay, um, it's that that I want to have more of an, an interesting discussion about. So, to summarize, there is a mitzvah of prayer. Strictly speaking, prayer is asking for God what you need. There's a dispute whether it's biblical, whether it's rabbinic, to what extent women are obligated, blah, 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 blah. However, the way the sages have constructed the prayer service, clearly, and the way they connect it to the verses in the Torah, um, and the way Rabbi Yusuf Ben-Uziel uses the word prayer, clearly indicates that there is, a, there is an, a service of prayer, which is the emotional work of cultivating the, emotional mitzvahs of love and fear and trust, etc., that is supposed to set one up for making that request. And if one fails to do so, they have not performed the mitzvah of prayer properly. I'm not saying they didn't do it at all, but certainly they did not do it the way it's supposed to be done. Okay. Now, I want to turn to the to um, fact that the sages describe the tefillah as an aveda okay? Does anyone know what the Hebrew word avoda means? Sure. It means work. It means work. Okay. Okay. There is a concept in halacha. Right? Everyone here likes halacha, right? The concept in halacha that if you have a evid, <laughs> an evid ivri, a Jewish <laughs> evid, all the more so an am a female Eved who's Jewish you are not allowed to have them do what's called Ovedas Perech Ovedas Perech um, means work that has no purpose so for instance I had a friend oh I get it you know it's not to betam, like pick up like things like counts, uh sugar things right well I want to use the example of my friend he was in the Russian army okay. So I asked him once what it was like to be in the Russian army and communism. It probably still is this way. He said, he said, Russian army morning will they wake you up and give you shovel and tell you dig ditch from here this way till evening. Next morning they wake you up, fill in ditch. Next morning, dig ditch again. Dig fill, dig fill. They want to break spirit. <laughs> That's called the race para. You make a person do something which has no point just to break, them. break their spirit. Are you, if you have a Jewish evet, are you allowed to give them a vaydas perech? No. Can the work be hard? No. Yeah. But it has to be something that is actually beneficial and constructive. That You're accomplishing something. Okay? By the way, if you have a non-Jewish slave, can you give them a Vedas perech? No. Yes, you can. No. You can? You can. Oh. Yes. Hey, Leish, but what what's the difference between pointless and, like, degrading work? Is there? I, I don't what work is degrading. I don't like know. Cleaning a toilet. Cleaning a toilet is not degrading. Why was cleaning it's toilet degrading. So it needs to be clean. It's not degrading. I clean toilets. I know, but, like, I know, but isn't no. there, like, that whole thing about, yeah. I just remember, like, a great teacher telling me that, like, they found out that their cleaning lady from like the cleaning lady agency was Jewish, so they couldn't have her clean the toilet because so it was degrading. I'm, two things. One. Anything would like, you wouldn't do. So two things. Yeah. Two things. One. That's an employee, and to my knowledge, that an employee you can ask them to do anything money. you want as long as yeah, as you're paying them. So that I. I I don't want to like say that. It just doesn't make sense to me. Number two, to my knowledge, um, if you're if you're doing something that you would not do for yourself, <coughs> um, that means you see it as that worthless. That has a lot of areas in halacha, right? But if it's, you know, me. I don't know if you, and here's the. I mean, the, this is the question, really. I'll give you an example: of the laws of returning lost objects, where this shows up very, very clearly. One, you have to return a lost object. If you find a lost object, it belongs to a Jew, you have to return it. of details this. What if it's not dignified for you to carry on this lost object? Then do you have to do it? But like an old person it's No, th- your time, when you don't have to. That's a separate law. I'm talking about dignity. Like, like if like let's say you're the chief rabbi of the city and you find someone's shopping cart of old, um, you know, clothes that they're collecting, do you have to push it through the street? No. So the very simple alach is like this, okay? Assuming you find it in the city where there's people around, so the rule is like this. If it was yours, would you push it through the street? Or we'd say, well, it's, it's undignified. It's not worth enough to pour my dignity. Then you don't have to do it for someone else a very simple rule. When you say it's not feeling dignity, if the choice was you wouldn't clean the toilet and you just have a dirty toilet because it's not your dignity to clean the toilet or like if there was no one else you would go clean the toilet because you know someone else to get cleaned then there's nothing undignified about cleaning the toilet. I, mean, I prefer obviously not to clean it for someone else to do it but like your dignity is weighed against what you're going to forego. You know what I'm saying? Like are you really going to suffer having the dirty toilet because I can't clean toilets and like so it just should go uncleaned. Okay, and there are things that are like that. They're just, like, they're not that important, and doing them is undignified, and, like, it ra- you'd rather them not get done than you having to do them because of... The- okay, that's a different thing. Uh, how that plays out with an employee, because an, an employee can make any relationship they want. Um, yeah, so the chief rabbi does not have to push a shopping cart full of old clothes that look like they were rejected by goodwill through the street because, um, you know, Shabbos evading. Maybe. Okay. Fine. So so now, therefore, if, therefore, if, now, another, so, so, so work is hard, but if, if, if you're giving work to your Jewish slave, the work has to at least be constructive, right? Can't be hard just for the sake of breaking your spirit. So if tefillah is called, the right? And we're saying that that the Shabbalayf is primarily the part leading up to the Birkasha, up to the request, the, the part that Targum Yunus ben Menuzil says is the Tzalisa, the prayer part, rather than the request part. And that means it's supposed to be hard, and it's supposed to accomplish something, because if it's hard and doesn't accomplish something, then should God allow it to command it to a Jew? No, because God keeps the Torah. Mm. So remember I said in this class I'm going to limit to prayer as it's ideally construed what we should strive for and not what to do in bare minimum. Okay. It, it's not a it's not a, it's not a bad question, but just if we're only gonna have two classes of an hour and a half each, I'd rather second last class? What? second mm-hmm. What? Is there a second to last class? No I believe so. Next week is sure. Next 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 Monday. And then Monday. Monday after, I don't know. I know it's... have to see. Okay. Um, so, so here's the thing. What is the thing that needs to be accomplished? And that's what I want to spend the last 15 minutes of class. What is the overall thing that needs to be accomplished during... Um, this build-up to the Shmon Esrei, Or, yeah, progress needs to be made. And, I mean, some things aren't just like you do or you don't, right? They're like, like making money. It's not like you're making money or you're not. I mean, you could not make money, but you can make more, you could make less. What does that need to be accomplished? And then the next class, I want to talk more about how the structure of Tefillah, as our sages conceived of it actually is meant to facilitate that and accomplish that okay so we're all familiar with the idea we have a godly soul and an animal soul we've heard about this ad nauseum like literally to the point that we can just regurgitate it back like, literally ad nauseum right? can all say. Um, now briefly a bit about the animal soul and then briefly a brief little bit about the godly soul because we've all discussed this before animal soul that's the part of us that cares about what me (laughs) no cares about me isn't that me open to interpretation yes right so me could be like my individual self at this moment for the next 10 seconds or me could mean like the span of my whole life or me could mean me and my family or me could mean me and my nation right concepts of self are very elastic and flexible right and therefore, what is in my welfare, what is my interest, what is good for me, changes as the conception of me changes, right? That makes sense? Okay. Here's the problem. Do you know what we don't feel? I'm so just the word feel right now is good for me. There's something that we don't feel is good for me, or for you in your case, me in my case. God. We don't feel that God is good for us. How how can you tell, how can you measure, how can you evaluate whether you feel God is good for you? you Blah, 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 blah. That doesn't mean anything (laughs) to anybody. That's just something more concrete. (laughs) How do we feel that God is... How do we know that we do not feel that God is good for us? But I do feel God. You don't. we don't think that everything that happens to us is good. Well, I mean, have you ever heard of the concept of comfort food? What is comfort food? It's when you're feeling down, things aren't going well, and you need some sort of like, you know, pick-me-up and support and rejuvenate and recharge. And, I, right? and food, who does that? That clearly means that we feel food is good for us and more than just like it keeps us alive and gives us enough calories to function, but it's good for us in other more deeper psychological ways. By the way, that could be wrong, right? You're allowed to be wrong about what you feel is good for you. Have you ever heard of the concept of uh, um, comfort mitzvahs? No. Like, have you ever heard of this? Like, I'm having a bad day, I'm having a hard day. I just need some comfort mitzvahs. I did that. Actually, I think What? I we do there, do that. That. there are people who do that. There are people who do that, right? I'm not saying they are not. I'm speaking in generalities because it's a lecture class, or at least an official title. What? maybe. Okay. Or sometimes. Also sometimes. Sometimes. I think so. Okay. But I, I want to I I specifically keep prayer out of it for a reason, which I don't want to share right now. No, I just thought about it. Yeah. Yeah, but, like if you're helping someone else, that makes you feel better. That's not what I'm asking. That's no, well, you feel I know that when you go do a mitzvah to help somebody, you, you feel better. That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking a question is like this. When you're feeling down, do you feel the draw to go do a mitzvah the same way you feel the draw to whatever your comfort food is. No, I hear people saying oh, I want to hang out with God. Like, that doesn't mean anything. That, 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 that's what I mean. I, the, the thing is, God is too open-ended. It just becomes a projection of whatever you want. I, I, so after is like where God actually is. And God is actually into our mitzvahs. I. E, like, study or pray or, like, do Torah stuff Right. So, like, I, you know, so, I mean, I, I read a story. It's a fictional story, but, it's a very interesting. It's one of those things that's based on truths, but it's, it's a fictional story. Um, and in this story, there's a chassid who's who experiences the his 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 uh, son. His son's not a child; he's married. Like he's like in his fifties, and his son is in his twenties. And his son dies suddenly, um, and like he's got a young grandson and uh, and but he's like this very deep, powerful. Chassid. It's all fiction. It's never actually happened and uh, on the way to the at the funeral he 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 gets it that really there's nothing other than god and like it, whether things are this way or that way the ultimate truth is that it's all good because it's all god There's nothing other than god and and he he starts rejoicing like it's in his at his own son's funeral and he can't process what he's experienced at the funeral and so he has this breakdown afterwards okay that's all the build-ups we want to what get to. So then the story goes on, and he, like, he feels the need to, like... You ever have, like... I mean, we all break down when things are going like... We, 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 we need our support. We need our comfort. So the interesting thing is in this fictional story, which is, like, it's based on different people's experiences all kind of agglomated together. How does he find the, the strength to get through day by day? after like his whole inner life has been crushed where does he where does he where does he get his strength from learning mishnais <laughs> right I, mean, like, I get like you know i go home and my wife has made like lasagna like that's good like now i'm like okay i can deal with things right hey <laughs> are like i learned mishnais okay now i can deal with things right It's not a usual thing Okay. Now, this exists on a spectrum. It's not black and white. But the idea of feeling God is, 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 is good for us means that when we're is measured at our lowest moments, not what we aspire to, not what we believe, not what we, we, we strive for, but when we are at our weakest and our lowest, do we, do we see God? And by God here, I mean God as he actually is found in Torah mitzvahs as actually our source of rejuvenation, our source of strength, our source of comfort, or, on the contrary, are we our most religious selves when we're our most inspired and our best selves? And if that's the case, then that means that deep down, our sense of personal well-being is completely detached from God. That once I've taken care of my more basic needs and I'm you know, optimistic and I'm inspired and I'm positive, then I have time to like, go do the godly stuff. Then I have the mental space to go do the godly stuff. And so one of the problems, one of the things that needs to be worked on and actually changed through this whole process is the fact that our animal soul, the part of us that cares about our well-being, should start to feel, not believe, not ascribe to, not aspire to, but actually feel that God is good for us. And consequently, separation from God is bad. bad for us. Have you ever like been traveling? Just keeping this. Stuff. Have you ever been traveling and you realize in the middle you need the bathroom and there's no bathroom? <laughs> okay, that was too much information. But okay. And then like, and then so like you finally get to your destination and like like you get out of the car like you rush to the bathroom. We all know what that that it happens once in a while to all of us. Okay. <laughs> Some people more than others. Fine. I was kidding. The second Chabad Rebbe had that experience from time to time. Except it wasn't with going to the bathroom. It was with learning Gemara. Oh. Like he was in the middle of it, he was in the wagon. And I, Need come on, like now, now, get me the Gemara, and like the wagon came and he, like rushed out. It, it, it's funny because it's like so far removed from us, okay? So you have to put this on a spectrum. But how much is Torah and mitzvahs, where God really is found, something that we have to be our better self for, and how much is it something that we we fall back on when we're our lowest selves? And the more it's something you fall back on in your lower self, the something that's more that you really need in order to make it through life, that shows you really feel that God is is good for you. On the other hand, if you have to be, you know, well-rested and eaten and, like, your teacher didn't, like, publicly humiliate you in class and, you know, it happens to be that the last thing you learned about Judaism was inspiring and then you're willing to, like, throw yourself into the Torah mitzvahs, then that means you don't really feel that God is good for you. You might believe it. You might aspire to it. But, but you don't feel it and that's one of the things that needs to be fixed and worked on in that part leading up to the Shmon Esrei what about the godly soul so that's, that's what's known roughly speaking as refining the animal soul the more refined the animal soul is the more we feel that God is good for us and again by God I don't mean still that's right I'm talking about feeling you don't need to pray in order to know that's very easy is very, very hard. That's what I'm saying. Very, very hard. Because to realize that seven-layer cake is bad for us is much easier than to get to the point that when I'm at a low point, I don't gravitate towards the seven-layer cake because I don't feel like it's giving me anything. That is a much harder thing to do. And that is the whole chakras up to Shmon one of the things, if it's done right, is supposed to help us move in that direction. And that is a very slow and difficult process. I don't know. I still have a so hard time like, understanding how you're saying like, we don't believe that God is good for us. No, we do believe. I didn't say we didn't believe. I said we do believe. I just said that prayer is not about belief that God is good for you. It's not about I'm aspiring to us. Really it. It's about feeling. I'm saying it's not enough that. Of course we believe, I mean, I'm assuming most people believe that because they're sitting in this room um, to some degree or another. But what I'm saying is that... Did you that, say that earlier? What? Well, we don't, oh, we don't feel, feel, feel emphasis on the word feel this is all about feeling that God is good for us I don't feel that God is good for me and the reason I know is that when I have a bad day that's like the day when the Torah and Mitzvahs is like the weakest when I have to like kick myself to do the stuff and when I'm feeling on top of the world and everything that I feel I need is taken care of all of a sudden now I have time for the Torah and the Mitzvahs well that, what does that tell me it means that as a matter of aspiration and values it's, yeah God is good for me but as a matter of how I actually feel about things there's a disconnect and that means the animal soul is so called unrefined does it like get to a point where like you're like that like the Torah and the mitzvah is where you fall back on and you see how it actually like and it does like lift you up and it does like it is comforting like that tub of ice cream that like it becomes like yeah. more used to it more used to it, and it just. Yeah. but it's, it's it, the, I'm not getting into how this happens right and I'm just saying okay. that's the work that needs to be done uh-huh. okay and obviously, what that means is that it, 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 it's a very difficult and slow process for most of us. We're not going to, in one chakras, all of a sudden make that shift. The other thing, and very briefly because within the class, we have a godly soul. We've spoken about godly soul. And what does a godly soul care about? Godly soul cares about God. Now, um, the honest truth is that if you never learned Chesedis and nobody ever told you you had a godly soul, you wouldn't know that you had a godly soul. And the reason for that is because although we have a godly soul, the godly soul um, has forgotten it's a good analogy what it means to be a godly soul the The, the analogy that Chassidim would use is the in in, in Zaris rush, they would kidnap little Jewish children and make them into soldiers for twenty or forty years called the Cantonists, and they would often forget like. What you know their their early childhood experiences, and they had this like vague sense that they were missing like there was that, that they 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 knew that they were missing something, but they didn't know what it was. And sometimes, um, you know, they would hear a, a Jewish song, or they would hear uh, see a mitzvah or something, and all of a sudden things would come flooding back. And Chassidim would use that as an analogy that our godly soul can be reawakened. But it's but it's inherently been so traumatized by the process of coming into the world that it's forgotten what it actually means to be godly. So we don't have a generally innate experience. There's like an underlying Jewish restlessness about the world, which translates into things like Marxism and, you know, general relativity. Because um, when you're restless, you try and, you know, solve problems. But the idea that we have a godly soul, um, that has to be worked on, not in the sense of refining it or changing it, but reconnecting it to its source, or if you want to think about like the Cantonist, all of a sudden the memories of childhood coming back by even properly triggered and these are basically connecting the animal soul to God and connecting the godly soul back to God and that's really what this first part of tefillah is all about is about working on that and when you have your godly soul reconnected to whatever degree you have a sense of the godly soul within him because it's been reawakened. And you have refined your animal soul, that you actually feel that God is good for you. Then when you make those requests, it's a totally different kind of requesting. You're no longer requesting the same things and in the same way. And when our sages set up the prayer, they didn't want it just to merely be, I need a new car. God runs the world, so I ask God for a new car and then I like, say some nice things about him first. What they really wanted is that I should have this sense that I'm godly on the one hand, that even as a human being, God is good for me, and coming from that place, ask God for what I need. Well, now I feel like I need different things, and I ask in a different way. And so the whole buildup from Modani up to Shimon Esrei is meant to reconnect the godly soul and connect, because the animal soul is never connected me with the animal soul, and that means reawaken the sense of being godly, that we've forgotten because of the trauma of coming into the physical world, and change how we actually feel about God as human beings, that God, meaning God as he's found in tournaments, is actually as a source of strength and comfort um, that we fall back on, that we, that we draw strength from, rather than something we aspire to when we're in a positive state. Now, how do we do that and how, like, the, all the structure of the siddur is geared towards that, we will do in the next class. Mm-hmm. Or you can just, like, say the words and, you know, ask for a new car. That's also good. If you want. You started going through the last day of Master going through the prayer book. There's, like, a, there's a book that basically describes all the different prayers of the Hasidic. Which, which book? What is it called? It's like the, Um, it's a big book just, just on chakra right? yeah what? it's from Kha'as yeah. right. it's English it's a memoir what? it's a few it's a few different memoirs put together plus uh, basically Kha'as so. obligations <gasps>